I like to call it white Christian nationism. I think that makes more sense. From Interfaith Alliance, this is The State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. Nationalism is a technical term in ethics that has to do with kind of patriotism on steroids, often is associated with militarism and violence. The term I use is authoritarian reactionary Christianity. So what's the problem? Reactionary. Christians who are freaked out by modern social and political and legal changes in the direction of pluralism, diversity, the dethroning of kind of white Christian men being the main or only power brokers in society. It's about immigration, it's about race, it's about sex, it's about gender, it's about um, everything that has changed in our country since about 1962. Reactionaries say, no, 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 all of this is wrong, all of this violates God's will, we don't like it. With Christian nationalism emerging as a dangerous force, both in this country and in other parts of the world, it is a critical time for expert voices to weigh in on this threat and on finding a way out. This week, I'm looking forward to an in-depth conversation with Christian ethicist David Gushy, who has just published his latest book, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. We are growing the state of belief, building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a next generation state of belief podcast that I want to make sure you're subscribed to. So please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversations you are hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you so much for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now to my guest, Christian ethicist Dr. David P. Gushy has weighed in on some of the most pressing issues of our day. His titles include Changing Our Mind, a groundbreaking take on LGBTQ inclusion in society and the church, which is now in its third edition. A Letter to My Anxious Christian Friends and Still Christian, Following Jesus Out of American Evangelicalism. These books help change the conversation around weighty cultural war issues and the evolving nature of American evangelical Christianity. Just this month, he has published Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies, putting him once again on the front lines of Christian ethics and American democracy. I am so happy that the release of this book has given me a reason to have you on the show. David, welcome to The State of Belief. Thank you, Paul. It is uh, great to see you in this chair after knowing you in other uh, settings in the past. And Thanks for the kind introduction and the chance to talk today. 
Listen, I am thrilled. You are um, one of the people who I have, I feel like uh, we've been walking side by side from different backgrounds, but somehow going closer and closer and closer together as we continue, both continue to evolve in our thinking and our spiritual life. And I'm just so delighted to have a chance to speak with you. I want to just jump in because this is, uh, dare I say it, one hell of a title. Uh, defending <laughs> democracy from its Christian enemies. Wow. I'm just like thinking back to what a uh, 23-year-old righteous David Gushy would have thought of that title. What What are you trying to do with this title? What is What are you trying to do with this book? Bring us into, into this moment uh, of your thinking and this book and this title. Here's the, uh, here's the book. Um, you'll notice the Christian flag on the front and the Capitol building and the barbed wire and the whatever. How about if I just say it, a 23-year-old me, evangelical Christian, Southern Baptist, I would have been at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary at the time, preparing to become a Southern Baptist pastor. 23-year-old me did not yet know that Christians, my tribe of Christians once, could so often, so consistently be wrong, mm. could so often be on the wrong side of history and the wrong side, I think, of God's will. I used to think that Christianity was more like an unequivocal good source of good in the world. And, and now, I mean, I've been disabused of that a long time ago. I think Christians can be a source of good in the world, but it's about what kind of Christianity mm. uh, in the, this mm. book with the smoking hot title that kind of makes your hands burn when you pick up the book, that title has been clear to me ever since January 6, 2021, when there were Christians in the Capitol building or self-identified Christians waving Christian flags and Trump flags and American flags and Confederate flags and so on praying in the, in the Capitol building convinced that what they were doing was part of God's holy will. Um, but the book is not just kind of a diatribe against people who got tangled up in January 6th. It's a reasoned argument about a tendency that is obvious, and that is some Christians in the U.S. and around the world are drifting away from or rushing headlong from democratic norms because they believe that God and morality require something more radical. Um, that the they are in such profound negative reaction to cultural changes that they dislike. Um, and they are in some places losing confidence that democracy will give them the, the results that they want. And so they are heading over the cliff into authoritarianism. Yeah. And we are, and we, that's yeah. what this book is about. Yeah, I mean, I I see that completely, and I I think that's absolutely right. I remember, I think, I think it was Robbie Jones who I was talking to, when he like all of a sudden like began to. He was raised Southern Baptist as well, and at some point he just got mad because he no one had told him like the you know what the origin story of the Southern Baptist was, and he was like, oh wait yeah. a second, you never you never told me what this is all about, and I just think it's really important to recognize that. 
Christianity, religion in general, I, I just think it's like we have to acknowledge those of us, especially who, you know, we're both ministers. We're, we are, we preach the gospel, um, but we have to, part of the gospel is the truth that religion is often wrong and is often, you know, is often used for means. And in this country that there, our history is filled with examples of that. And if we can't learn from that, and if we can't examine that and take that and say, okay, how can we do better, all of us? Um, we're, how do, what does it mean to like believe that you're following, you know, following someone who, you know, a, a religious, um, you know, a savior who tells us that there's a better way? And so I think that this is helpful, and I think it's especially helpful coming from someone like you who thinks deeply about Christianity, Christian ethics, and I think this battle around. Christianity and democracy, you know, the big rhetoric was Protestant Christianity is one of the reasons we have democracy. I don't know if you ever went to seminars like that, but I sure did. Mm -hmm. um, and now we're in a state where, you know, we see this wild advent of anti-democratic rationale happening within uh, Christian nationalist circles. So give us some examples of, of where you've seen this play out. January 6th, for sure, but it's not the only example. No, it's not. Um, here's the, the story that I basically tell uh, in the book. The long history of human civilization, the vast majority of that history, has been characterized by centralized power. Monarchs, dictators, autocrats of all types. Go back to the beginnings of recorded civilization. There were a, a few experiments in democracy, like in ancient Athens, and you had uh, some Republican stuff happening in ancient Rome. But then, you know, in, imperialism and dictatorship and monarchy, and even in, in Christendom, it was Christian monarchy and Christian uh, autocracy in all, all over, you know, the former Roman Empire. But finally, people began stirring, and, and both for religious reasons, and sometimes more of a of a post-Christian, post-religious uh, reason, they realize, you know what? People have the right to rule themselves, and centralized power is bad for people. I think the best account of the birth of democracy, like in the U.S. and in France and in Great Britain in the 17th and 18th and 19th century, is a combination of dissenting Christians saying, we're tired of being burned at the stake for having the wrong religion. And we want a society in which people have the freedom to believe what their conscience demands. See, that was a Christian argument. But then you also had Enlightenment philosophers like John Locke saying, you know, we should really think of government as an agreement of the people to delegate some of our freedom and our power to a state that will protect us from one another and ourselves, but mainly from one another. And so that's the Enlightenment kind of social contract basis for government. So, you know, 18th century America, we don't have a revolution. We don't have the Bill of Rights if we don't have both of those things going on. What I'm saying is that we've had a 240-year, not flawless by any means, but a 240-year experiment in a democracy that is not unfriendly to religion, but that is also does not establish religion as official. And um, and that allows the people to govern themselves. Um, but I would say this, the um, culture wars environment that has been baking here for 60 years 
is now fundamentally threatening that arrangement. Yeah. The name that a lot of us use for this is Christian nationalism. Do you use that term? And if, if you do use that term, which I use, I use because it's the term that we've kind of agreed to call this, this right. phenomenon that's happened. What is your kind of succinct definition of Christian nationalism? How do you describe that? Um, I do have a section in the book that engages that language with respect, but also proposes a different key term. Uh, when uh, Sam Perry and Andrew Whitehead came up with their book, uh, Taking America Back for God, I think it was called. Yeah. Um, that was where they brought the language of Christian nationalism back uh, or made it central to the conversation. And they meant basically the belief on the part of many American Christians that this is a Christian nation. Um, but also uh, what they what people mean by that is a white Christian nation with a certain set of power structures, including male dominance and uh, white supremacy. And um, and that kind of the way power used to be arranged is the way it should be arranged now. So I so white Christian nationalism, I like to call it white Christian nationism. I think that makes more sense. Nationalism is a, is a technical term in ethics that has to do with um, kind of patriotism on steroids, often is associated with militarism and violence. I think that's a little bit of a different term, so I don't really, I don't love it for this discussion. The term I use is authoritarian reactionary Christianity. Mm. I think that may be more descriptive, at least it's more descriptive if you're doing cross-cultural comparisons. So what's the problem? Reactionary. Christians who are freaked out by modern social and political and legal changes in the direction of pluralism, diversity, um, the, the dethroning of kind of white Christian men being the main or only power brokers in society. It's about immigration. It's about race. It's about sex. It's about gender. It's about um, everything that has changed in our country since about 1962. Reactionaries say, no, 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 all of this is wrong. All of this violates God's will. We don't like it. Now, now it used to be that the race part of that was more veiled, but even the race part is not terribly veiled anymore. Right? Oh, no. So reaction. <laughs> yeah. Right? And then authoritarianism is more like a lot of these folks embrace a religion that is authoritarian by definition. The pastor, the dad, the Bible as I interpret it, the, the Pope or the patriarch or whoever tells us what is right and wrong. This is not a democracy. I tell you, or we tell you who's in charge and what's right. Um, I argue in the book that religious authoritarianism has a kind of an impact within religious communities. But when it, when it spills over into a democracy, it can become toxic to the democracy itself. Mm. Mm. There are people today who are essentially dreaming, again, the old dream of either a Christian dictator strongman and Trump or Putin or Viktor Orban. I write about all of them in the book. Bolsonaro in Brazil. We want a Christian strongman who will stand uh, against the tides of culture and say no and, right. and, and turn it all around. Yeah. Or maybe we don't want, I mean, or basically we want to weaken democracy or alter it in such a way that all those other people who don't have a right to be in charge don't have a right to have the voice that we have a right we're gonna we're gonna weaken their political power or manipulate the rules so that we win every time yeah 
We're talking about defending democracy from its Christian enemies. Uh, this, I'm speaking with David Gushy, uh, its author. I think this is exactly the phenomenon that we're seeing. It may, it may be um, somewhat veiled sometimes, but sometimes it's very out in the open. I mean, I think Trump is is tapping into this ideology, although Trump, you know, it's very funny that like the um, <laughs> that that he's the he's the personification of this Christian dream. It's very fun. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. Funny. Not ha ha, but uh, right. but very um crazy but he's he speaks into it all the time and even his you know backward facing maga logo is really about i think exactly what you're talking about and what we're seeing is um you know people kind of beginning to fall into the trap and that's what i you know when i'm out there talking just like a very clear like i'm a christian i'm actually a religious person i be- we go to church we do all that good stuff i'm also a patriot i have a lot of love for this country i care about this country you cannot claim these two areas and say that you're kind of carrying those banners because i reject that claim you're actually like betraying i mean the idea the betrayal of christian you know, well, you, you're the ethicist, but, the, you know, the, the Jesus who I, I love and then the betrayal of, frankly, our founding documents around religion and the, how religion is meant to function and how, you know, it's one of the best things that our founding fathers did was the non-establishment clause, which is like not ambiguous. Part of what it feels so difficult to me is I do believe people can change their mind, but I'm just not, people feel very entrenched right now. Is there a way to have a, a conversation about this in the, in the public sphere? To your first question, I definitely get into the genius of the U.S. arrangement, which was, remember when the French had their revolution, it was anti-religious. Our revolution was not anti-religious. It was, right. uh, you might call it a friendly neutrality. Right. We're not going to sponsor religion. We're not going to suppress religion. We're going to let it be a free market of religion and let people go at it. But we're just not going to pay for it. And we're also not going to let any group be established nationally. That was an ingenious solution. That was religious disestablishment with free exercises. The First Amendment. It's amazing. Um, it was an amazing achievement. It's an, it's an elegant. It's such an elegant phrase, and uh, oh. that is um, so so uh, rapidly betrayed. Right. Um, and what I think is right now, I mean, I, I thought 20 years ago that if the First Amendment were put up for a vote in the southern states, it would probably lose. Um, and I think that's even more clear now. Um, but but I think we have to understand why. And I think that the best explanation is a narrative that now exists in conservative Christian circles And again, it's not just in this country. The narrative is liberal, secular um, uh, elites, especially, but people in general, and lots of other outsiders, strangers to our way of life, have come in and have hijacked our country. And um, in the name of everything sacred, and that is usually throwing together nation, God, Bible, race, tradition, we must push back. Right. And we must ensure that these others, these outsiders, these feminists, uh, woke people, etc., never have the ability to have control of this country or any of its institutions again. The dream is 
conservative Christian dominance at this point in every sector of society, media, academia, K through 12 schools, government, and so on. And they genuinely believe that right now, all of those sectors are controlled by liberals who are trying to basically steal the souls of their children. And all of this is ginned up by some conspiracy thinking on significant quadrant of this movement, apocalyptic God versus Satan, good versus evil narratives. Mm. And, um, and that gets to your second question. If people go down the rabbit trail of conspiracy thinking and QAnon and every election is God versus Satan, the Democrats are spawns of Satan, etc. It's very hard to have a conversation with them. The spiritual warfare element of this phenomenon, and which brings politics into a zero-sum game. There's no compromise. If you're, if it's God versus the devil, we're not going to compromise with the devil. We're going to defeat the devil. And one of the things that you know I've been observing that you, you, I'm sure I know it's in your book is. Just the use of that kind of language by politicians, as you know, who are trying to cultivate these uh, voters uh, who may be anti-democratic, but they sure are willing to use um, the democratic process uh, to get their way until it doesn't go their way. And then they use force to try to overturn it, as we saw on January 6th and many other ways. So I, I think this like that is the that's the difficult thing. And, and it's the question is, like, how do you like. How do we move forward? I mean, one of one of the things I'm, when, you know, I speak around the country as you do, and I, I'm always, I always hasten to say, like, listen, you can be a conservative Christian. I want you to follow your faith. I want you to follow, you know, be a conservative Muslim, be a conservative Jew, do whatever. It doesn't mean that we can't work side by side and do a lot of things together and just disagree on the fact that maybe you don't think my family should exist, you know, uh, my you know my partner and my two kids, you know, like we, you may disagree with my lifestyle. We can live together in democracy, and you can practice your Christianity exactly as you want it. You just can't dictate to me, and I I just I try to I I'm trying to extend the hand wherever I can. I don't know, like what. But you're from, I you know I'm a commie from the start. You know, <laughs> you know, you know, you know. Like I, I'm suspect because I'm like you know I I grew up in the liberal Christian church. So, but you're right. you you have bona fides that I I don't have. I, I'm just curious how how those conversations ha- go with you in, in in trying to extend the hand. Do you find that you've been able to reach people because people can change? I mean that is possible. But how how do we reach them? I think it helps if you can identify or find a point of contact with the concern of the other of the other side right. of the other person. Concern about lack of a moral center in our culture, kind of lack of clarity about right and wrong. Um, concern about how destabilized it is that everything seems to change all the time. Um, you know, uh, and I also want to say that not every social change since the 1960s do I celebrate. There are some things that are, I think, problematic so but but that uh i try to say that a posture of consistent negative reaction to like for example a society in which people of different races are treated more fairly that's not a christian posture to be against that right or a society in which women have a chance to exercise their gifts and be who god made them to be a patriarchal posture i I try to argue that's not the way Jesus treated women, and, and and we need, in other words, we need to make a Christian argument against patriarchy. And I'm I'm pleading with people on the issue of LGBTQ people 
this issue, this community is being demagogued right and left for political purposes all over the world. And I say, is that really in the spirit of Jesus? Is that how Jesus treated people? You know, in other words, part of what the book does is to remind us of both traditional and biblical resources for pushing back against this domineering and sometimes quite cruel exclusionary version of Christianity. Um, and you see it actually, you see people accommodating their understanding of Christianity to fundamentally unchristian practices and language and values. Um, and, you know, Donald Trump has had a has had a role in that and that he teaches us every day how to be a bad person. And a lot of people redefine bad as good because he's doing it right. Mm. Threats mm. of violence and simmering um, hatreds of, and resentments and anger of various types. His transgressiveness is, is discipling a lot of other people into transgressiveness and, and seeing that as somehow Christian. Mm. So we've had a failure of discipleship. Um, and it reminds me of when I studied pre-Nazi Germany, all those people who somehow could, could accommodate uh, commitment to the fascist movement and commitment to Christ and somehow went together. Uh, we're losing the souls of Christian people. So it's a Christian issue. It's a discipleship issue and not mm. just a political issue. Oh, I think that's so powerful. We'll take another break now and be back with Dr. David Gushy. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in conversation with Dr. David Gushy. His new book is titled Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. I'm sure you know about Christians Against Christian Nationalism and other movements like that that are really trying to say to Christians particular, we have a special role to play in trying to figure out how to reach uh, folks. But you know, I do think that, you know, you mentioned QAnon, and I my sense is that this is this is playing perhaps an underappreciated role in, in how... Um, how Christians are themselves are getting kind of misled through um, these re these these mysterious sources on the internet, which are very intentionally leading people astray. And it's been very interesting to hear about conservative, you know, more conservative with the traditional C um, uh, Christian pastors being kind of forced out of congregations because they're not QAnon enough. And when you have that, then you're like even the kind of traditional conservative. Christian movement is getting sidelined and replaced. In some ways, it replicates the GOP, where you like you have people getting sidelined because they're not 
adhering to these crazy conspiracy theories. And it feels very rough, but we're not going to be all negative here today. We're, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, if we're honest about our faith and, and also about our country, like, you know, we have faced terrible times before and various communities have faced terrible times before. And, and one of the things that's been interesting for me to speak with I had Eric Ward, who's a wonderful anti-racist guy who's at Race Forward. And he said, you know, one of the biggest lies they want us to believe is that we're losing. When in fact, actually more Americans say they want a multiracial society than ever before in our history. And I spoke to Rabbi Sandra Lawson, who's a black uh, Jewish rabbi, and she was like, we're making progress. The worst thing we could do right now is say that there's no way to make progress. Right. You know, I and agree. so like I so so I'm curious how how do you um, imagine a way forward that can acknowledge that actually the majority of the country is with us. Poll after poll says the majority of the country does not want a Christian nation. The majority of the country wants a multi-religious nation. How do we acknowledge that, celebrate that, harness that? to push back against this minority position that is uh, ascendant in power. In the book, I talk about how I draw hope from the results of the 2022 midterm elections Mm. here, in which a number of extremist authoritarian candidates lost, some of them closely, some of them badly. If you follow politics, you might remember the names of Carrie Lake and Blake Masters in Arizona, or Doug Mastriano in uh, Pennsylvania. there were similar candidates um, running for high office, and they almost universally lost in any statewide race. So sometimes they lost badly. Um, the The majority of the people did not want that, um, and some of the worst performing candidates were those candidates. Yeah, I mean, yeah one of the meant- great. Yeah, one of the great. You know, great results of that election was Josh Shapiro, I think, is the was the right. ca- the candidate that beat Mastriano. So you had a Jewish candidate who beat a candidate who like it was openly saying that Christians should have dominion over all aspects of uh, American power. And Pennsylvania, which is not, you know, an overwhelmingly blue state, just said that is not going to be us. I and think it was he, like 60-40 or something. Yeah, it, it was, was really handily, handily. Yeah. I agree with you. I think that that was that demonstrated when you really get it out into the open and you shed a light on what is being attempted, people don't they recognize that that doesn't feel right. And it doesn't feel like the way forward for our country. So one way forward is to be very clear about what we're for. Yeah. And you've just described it as a, what if we call it a country that fulfills the unfulfilled promise of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, a country in which uh, there's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all, in which everybody's equal rights are respected, in which everybody has a vote and each vote counts the same in which anybody can run for office and have a chance to be elected, a multiracial, multireligious, wildly, riotously diverse country that manages to believe in enough things in common that we can move forward together. I think that's it. I mean, that's what I, that's what I, you know, I'm going to Iowa and I was talking to NPR Iowa and I was just saying like, what are the policies that will respect everyone the same? What are the ways that we can celebrate everyone? And I, I absolutely agree. Like America's promise of religious freedom, which is really the opposite of setting up a Christian dominance or hierarchy. And I think that the way you said it is perfect. And really, Casting that vision, which is in a very patriotic frame, 
but yeah. but an authentically patriotic frame about what you know what the hope is we can't discard anyone and i will say again like i understand that a lot of this and i think you've said it you know as well as anyone this idea of like the fear uh, it's reactionary but the reaction is fear and loathing and what if we just said yeah. you don't have to be afraid and you don't have to loathe these can be your friends. You can disagree, but you, these are your neighbors. And you're figuring out a way to you know, make sure that people understand that someone else is getting their rights does not mean that your rights are diminished. It just means right. that, you're, that you're part of the circle of America rather than at the center of America. You know, these are yeah, all that's right. ways of describing. You know, in the, in the book, I, I make a kind of a, you know, promise of American democracy argument, but also a Christian argument. You know, I go back to the 17th century Baptists who who were 400 years ago already arguing for religious liberty, disestablishment, uh, economic and human and civil rights uh, being protected, um, and the limits on the power of the state to tell everybody what they had to believe. Uh, those The Baptists of the 18th century in the U.S. helped to ensure that we had the First Amendment. They said, we're not going to support the Constitution unless we have the First Amendment. Um, and I also have a chapter on the black democratic tradition in the U.S. And I, and I say, you know, um, black people who have experienced the white supremacism and the, the, the deeply flawed founding democracy, which was a white, a democracy for white people, basically, but yet have not given up, have participated to the full extent that they were able, have pressed for us to live out what we're supposed to be, have, and, and, um, People like Raphael Warnock, one of our senators here in Georgia, who are calling for a new democratic covenant. Um, I use the language of covenant a lot in the book, Paul. I think you find it interesting. So in other words, we have Christian resources in the, 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 the democratically oriented Christian traditions, as well as in the dissenting black democratic tradition centered in the church, the civil rights movement and so on. Um, so we don't have to just like call on the constitution. We can also call on our faith, but we have to recover like kind of obscured resources that have been, I don't know, marginalized against all this right wing stuff. You know, we need to we need to say, hey, we have our own tradition. This is not liberalism. This is this is Christianity 101. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I, I really like that. And I, you know, I I, I, I love hearing like um, Senator Warnock talk about, you know, how his faith influences, of course, what he's doing in politics, but he's not using his position to exert dominance by Christianity over other faith traditions. Like, you know, I, I had a chance um my guess is that you have too to interview Jimmy Carter uh, when he was, you know, and he was like, Billy Graham was very upset that he didn't invite him to the White House to do services. But he said, I don't, I didn't want to use my position as president to elevate Christianity to make it seem like I was extolling Christianity over any other tradition. That was just really important to him as a Baptist, as a Christian uh, who really, you know, was loving. Uh, his neighbor, um, who was Jewish, Muslim, atheist, all of it, recognizing that his faith actually had something to say about how he showed up in a democracy. And I love that. I think that that's what we can take to the bank and say, OK, I'm going to show up 
but I'm going to show up in a way that that doesn't exert dominance, but actually, you know, it, to my, you know, and this is this is me putting on my my Christian preacher hat rather than my uh, interfaith alliance hat. But but it's like you know that doesn't you know that to follow Jesus doesn't mean I have to dominate anyone. In fact, that's like kind of the opposite of Jesus. Right, <laughs> he fought explicitly against it. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I, yeah. I love that. You asked. What would 23-year-old David Gushy say to this David Gushy? Um, well, I did a dissertation not long after that. It was on Christians who rescued Jews during the Holocaust. That was my first book. And I remember hearing a Polish-Jewish Holocaust survivor be interviewed in 1989. And she was a sociologist. Her name was Nakama Tech in New York. And she was asked, did Christianity motivate the people who rescued you, rescued you and other Jews in Poland? And she said, well, yes and no, but not just any kind of Christianity. A certain kind of Christianity motivated rescuers. A Christianity that was oriented towards uh, compassion for those who were oppressed, um, justice for the marginalized, and had a more inclusive vision in which to follow their God is to take care of their neighbor. It was that kind of Christianity. There was another kind of Christianity that was happening in Poland at the time that was much different. Mm. And and that and that is, I think, where I am. And I, I realize I almost wrote a book called A Certain Kind of Christianity. Mm. Because there's not just one version of Christianity as we know, Paul. There are many competing versions of Christianity. There's a really toxic version of Christianity out there right now. MAGA Christianity or whatever you call it, Christian nationalist Christianity, it bears no resemblance to the kind of Christianity that Nicomatech was talking about. Mm. A Christianity that extends itself for the wounded neighbor bleeding by the side of the road. I think Jesus said a little something about that at one point, didn't he? Yeah. You know I can't talk to you without bringing in Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, uh, <laughs> because you're our such a Walter. yeah yes. yeah our friend Walter um, and my great grandfather and Dr. Gushy. You have been such an important part of um, lifting up his legacy and and acknowledging it with all sorts of good work. I, I there's a quote that I'm going to read um, from Walter that that really speaks into what you just said. He said. The social gospel furnishes new tests for religious experience. We are not disposed to accept the converted souls whom the individualistic evangelicalism supplies without looking them over. Some who have been saved and perhaps reconsecrated a number of times are worth no more to the kingdom of God than they were before. Some become worse, more self-righteous, more opinionated, more steeped in unrealities and stupid over against the most important things more devoted to emotions, unresponsive to real duty. We have the highest authority for the fact that men may grow worse by getting religion. Jesus said some religious leaders compass sea and land to make a proselyte, and after they had had him, he was twofold more a child of hell than his converters. <laughs> Walter! Dang, man. You know, I mean, I actually love that because when I read it, I remember reading this when I was like in seminary and I was like, yes, you know, this is true that some, frankly, I'm, I'm sorry to say some Christians are terrible and they're made worse 
when they become Christians. <laughs> and so like, yeah. I love the idea of like, what kind of Christian? And I think you're raising it right there. What I like to say about religious freedom, whose religion, whose freedom? What does it all mean? So asking the follow-up question. And I think that that is just so important. So David, what has been some of the reaction you've gotten so far? Have there been any surprises? Uh, well, it's still pretty early. Um, as we speak, uh, the book is being released at this very day. Um, that's pretty exciting. Um, here's a surprise. I learned that this book was Erdman's number one bestseller just from pre-orders. <laughs> You've struck a nerve. That is uh -huh. good. Um, I have gotten a little bit, I'm sure a lot more is coming of the right-wing hate mail. You know, I'll tell you who the real enemies of democracy are, blah, 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 right? Um, but what I think, what I think people are appreciating is um, the articulation of what democracy is, because I think we had taken it for granted and we need to kind of go back to first principles and also um, the articulation of of 400 years of tradition of Christian people being pro-democracy. And that yeah. needs to be reaffirmed right now because you got people saying, ah, we never really had a democracy. We just had a republic. That stuff is just a, it's a sophistic kind of move. I deal with that in the book, by the way. Um, people are trying to cut the threads of our democracy where they're vulnerable. And, and I think people are rallying to the pushback that this book represents and to the analysis. So, yeah, I think it's it's striking a nerve. I look forward to seeing how that kind of echoes in the days to come. Yeah. Be prepared to be hearing from the president of Mercer uh, with people like calling for your ouster, not realizing that it's very hard to oust a university professor. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally confident of what my president will say. He said to me one time, he said, remember when we were working on torture together, right? He said, um, if I don't get angry letters about you, I assume you're not doing your job. Now, that is the university <laughs> president right there. Listen, good for you and good for your, like, you know, continuing to, um, you know, to push it. And and honestly, I do think that this um, this book is one of those things that uh, there are going to be younger people who are like, what is he talking? I'm going to read this book. I mean, I, I, they're going to have it under their pillow. This is an under pillow, the book in uh, in some conser conservative evangelical households. People are going to be uh, wanting to know what you're talking about challenged by it, but hopefully some people will have some hearts changed. I, I think that that can happen. We all have had our hearts changed about certain issues. You certainly have gone through changes. So I think that we can we can hope that this book is going to inspire some change in some hearts out there. I hope so. And I, I think that the Trump-inspired House of Cards is eventually going to collapse. I don't know how. And to the extent that this is about, in our country, to the extent that this is about him, um, you know, that is eventually going to collapse. But but the deep systemic, structural, reactionary spirit against all things modern, that goes beyond one person. And and so it has to be pushed back against with, with an argument. And I make that argument in the book, you know. It's not just enough to be outraged or uncomprehending or baffled. We need to understand and make a counterargument. That's what I'm trying to do. I love that. We end um, each uh, each episode by asking our um, our 
our friends. What gives you hope? So we all need a little hope right now. Uh, Professor Gushy, author of Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. What gives you hope? Um, A lot of young people are giving me hope these days. I work with seminary students and college students, and very, very few of them are buying this Christian nationalism thing. Um, They know that it's a rear guard action by their freaked out parents and grandparents, and they don't want any part of it. Okay? Oh, (laughs) young people are giving me hope. Um, uh, The post-evangelical movement is giving me hope. Millions and millions of people leaving evangelical Christianity still believing in Jesus, and it's because they believe in Jesus that they're leaving, right? Um, Interfaith partnerships with people who are committed to the well-being of all and to religious liberty for all and to democracy in this country give me hope. Mm. Um, People having seen democracy threatened, more and more people are studying it and, and trying to figure out how to protect it. That gives me hope. I think that our side is gonna win. Um, I think that a 240 year old experiment in democracy is not going to be defeated by this particular movement. Um, but I do think we better not take anything for granted. And I think we need to work hard to reform both Christianity and the practice of our democracy and to protect it from uh, its its destruction at the hands of those who don't who don't want it anymore. They want something different. I love every bit of that answer. Thank you so much. Reverend Professor Dr. David P. Gushy is Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University and Chair of Christian Social Ethics at the Free University in Amsterdam, as well as Senior Research Fellow at the International Baptist Theological Studies Center. David has led both the American Academy of Religion and the Society of Christian Ethics and is author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of more than 28 books, most recently, Defending Democracy from Its Christian Enemies. David, thank you so much for being with us here on The State of Belief. I love talking to you. Thank you, Paul. A true delight, and let's do it many times, all right? You got it. And that's all the time we have for this week's The State of Belief. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping State of Belief going. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And if you're getting something out of this show, share it with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going when the show is over. Follow us at Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your networks. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. The State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.